Hi, pals. Welcome to Leaders Learning, a podcast of conversations with great leaders. I'm the host, Blaine Hill. About halfway through 2020, I wanted to hear from really strong leaders about how they are leading in the many challenges of the year. This podcast is the result of those conversations. Today has an amazing conversation with the Reverend Dr. Danny Murphy, the General Presbyter of Trinity Presbytery here in South Carolina. That is, Danny is the executive leader for the Presbyterian churches in our region. Any conversation with Danny is interesting, but today's is especially engaging. This summer, Danny published an article entitled, My Thoughts on George Floyd. In that article, Danny shared accounts of his experiences with police officers as an African-American man. I'll put a link to that article in the show notes, and really, you should go read it. Danny will reflect on the publishing of that article and some of the stories in it about ten and a half minutes into the interview. Hey, you could do me a favor. If you could be sure that you're subscribed to this podcast on iTunes, and if you'd really like to do us a favor, give us a five-star review, please, and thank you. Danny, welcome to Leaders Learning. Twenty twenty has held a lot of surprises for everybody. Have you been surprised by anything in particular? Uh, yeah, I I, I really have. Uh, number one, I was surprised by the rapid transition of our church leaders in terms of um, you know, their their creativity, flexibility, and adaptability when it uh, came to shifting from offline church to online church. (laughs) Um, I know some of them had to do that uh, almost overnight in order to be able to remain connected to their folk. I've also been surprised by the uh, the generosity of folk. Um, I know in my conversations with some of the the, uh, pastors here in Trinity Presbytery, there was a real grave concern that... uh, you know, offerings would would uh, decrease uh, considerably, but I found that at least those congregations that were able to make that transition from offline to online church, uh, they have discovered that you know their their offerings have been really good, uh, main at least level, or in some instances, uh, is it's actually gone up because of other folks who. Are, in addition to the membership who are have an opportunity to view are now also contributing to their ministries so uh, so those, that's that's a, a couple of uh, surprises that i've that I've had in here in twenty twenty uh, not to mention just being surprised by the covid nineteen pandemic altogether that shut down the churches in in March <laughs> but even that was another that, that was another surprise, Blaine. I, I remember reading this um, this this joke uh, where Satan and God are talking to one another, and Satan says to God, laughing, <laughs> "I just shut down one thousand of your churches today." And God says, "Well, that's great because you just opened ten million living rooms for me." <laughs> 
Right. Uh, things things have not panned out uh, in the way we thought, and and thankfully, so much of it has been in creativity and generosity. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Very creative. That's a great observation. I will say I have struggled to lead in the middle of what have turned out to be several very, very large social challenges. We've talked about COVID, and then right behind it, we have to think about police injustice, social un- social protest, civil unrest, and even rioting. And then our country is in the middle of some very powerful political divisions. Um, yeah. and, and then we could talk about the economics as well. I wonder what you have seen or learned about leading with combined challenges at hand. Uh, well, you know, one thing that has that's come to the forefront um, uh, in a very big way is is just you know realizing that change is inevitable. I mean, I, I I don't think there's there's any doubt in anybody's mind at this particular time that you know we are living in unprecedented times. Uh, you know, the, the best uh, financial world systems and economies have taken a hit. Uh, systems that have stood for generations and were thought to be eternal have crashed. Uh, systemic issues of, of racial injustice and inequalities have risen to the surface like never before. As a matter of fact, we're having conversations. Conversations are being had that we've never had before. So, you know, just realizing that change is inevitable. But also, you know, um, as I've been in conversation with pastors and, and reflecting on what we're going through, um, I also realize, you know, that church leaders today are not the only ones who have had to face disruption. Uh, as we turn to Scripture, we come to understand that the Bible is, is littered with men and women in leadership positions who had to deal with um, uncertainty that was associated with unprecedented situations and circumstances in their own life. I mean, for uh, example, um, you were recalled Abraham. I mean, he was told to leave everything he ever knew and move to a completely different country of which at that time, uh, the location wasn't even known to him. He just had to set out walking by faith. Um, Again, for example, you know, David was a shepherd boy who was anointed to be king of Israel. And I know there was absolutely no way that he saw that coming. Uh, yet when he embraced uh, the calling, he became one of the greatest kings of Israel. As a matter of fact, you know, the earthly lineage of of our Savior of the world comes through him. And, and another example come to mind, I mean, Queen Esther, I mean, she was blindsided by Haman's plot to, to wipe out her people. So Again, the point is that, you know, church leaders today are not the only ones who have had to face a disruption because, you know, change is inevitable. Um, in fact, you know, when you really think about it, I mean, the very beginning of a person's life brings about change. A woman, a woman's body changes, first of all, to grow to accommodate the life that's growing inside of her. And even the birth of the child brings uh, about a status of change. You know, a husband becomes a a father, a wife becomes a a mother. So, you know, somebody once said change is the only constant thing about life. Um, And I know that's an oxymoron, but it's it's still true. You know, we, we love our routines. 
and we love our routines because, you know, they're safe, uh, they're comfortable, you know, they make us feel like we're in control. Uh, the problem with that, however, is that no meaningful growth happens in the safety of our routines, simply because of the fact that, um, you know, growth is always just beyond our comfort zones. And so if, if, if um, you know, as a matter of fact, you know, I'm just thinking when you think about, you know, how the Oxford Di- Dictionary defines uh, change, it says, it defines change as uh, to make someone or something different, to alter or to modify. And if nothing else, you know, this global pandemic altered the way, you know, believers had corporate worship. I mean, even the most social media adverse church leader had to take advantage of the the, the tools that technology provide in order to to try to remain connected with the saints and to uh, keep them, them them encouraged. So, uh, so you know, so again, just just realizing that change is an inevitable um, is um, something that 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 has come to the forefront for me. Um, I guess also another thing is you know being in the position that that I'm in. Um, Setting and communicating the vision is important for leaders, you know, in the position that I am as a leader. And, you know, I realize that this principle isn't anything new. I mean, it, it also is as timeless as scripture. You may recall in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 2, it says, uh, uh, Then the Lord said to me, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets so that the runner can carry the correct message to others. So it's important to, you know, to communicate uh, the vision uh, because at a time like this, you know, you create a picture that, that everyone can work towards. You know, for example, one of the first things as this started happening, you know, I realized that it would be very easy for folk to turn inward at a time like this and just sort of navel gaze. But, you know, I had to try to continue to put out there, you know, what we're really all about as as a church, you know, um, um, and that's being outward focus, that uh, we're not to be turning inward and navel gaze, and we're to be outward focused. So, you know, just to reiterate, you know, our mission and to get that out to the folks um, and um, and then to meet with some of the church leadership to to do some things that will help facilitate that and help folk really understand that no yeah we may be in the midst of this type of pandemic but nevertheless uh, we can't abandon the mission <laughs> right so you know that that that's been that's been uh, you know something in terms of trying to lead through all of these challenges and. And I guess the third thing would be just modeling, you know, the expected behavior. Um, uh, as as the, the general presbyter of Trinity Presbyterian, I saw that being my responsibility uh, to do that. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, John Maxwell says to lead any uh, way other than by example, you know, we send a fuzzy picture of leadership to, to others. And so... Uh, Are there example, particular... Yeah, examples, please. What are the? How did you try to do that? 
Well, uh, I was just going to say, you know, um, you know, I was recovering from my my mother's uh, death when you know this whole George Floyd situation took place, and uh, but because I knew that people were going to need to talk about this situation, this reality with the death of George Floyd. Well, as the Presbyterian leader, I took the initiative, you know, to, to, to actually share my own story out of all of, all of that to, um, uh, to set the example, to let folk know, Hey, yeah, we can talk about uh, this reality. And so, um, so again, as, as a, Presbyterian leader, I, I knew people needed to talk about that, and so I tried to uh, lead by example and uh, communicate into the Presbyterian with uh, an article that I entitled My Thoughts on George Floyd. Right, and I want the listeners to know that I will have a link to that article at blog post uh, in the show notes, and I encourage them to go read it. Uh, we'll talk, uh, I hope, a little more about it right now, but it is worth uh, reading. I want you to know that. Uh, it, it worked at least to one degree. Uh, I've shared that the article with our mission committee as we try to think and pray and wonder how to how to lead the congregation in uh, seeking racial justice uh, in in, a, in our community. So one on the win column, I hope. Uh, <laughs> what um, you you did personal very pub uh, you published a very personal reflection at the time of the death of George Floyd. Um, I wonder if you would tell us a little of the story that you begin with when you're out on an evening walk with your wife. My wife and I, we were out uh, taking a walk through our community uh, early in, in, in the morning. And, um, and as I was walking, all of a sudden, you know, I put my cell phone out of my pocket and I had my driver's license in my, my pants pocket. And when I put my cell phone out, my driver's license fell on the ground. And, and Judy, my wife, she turned to me and she said, why do you have your driver's license? And I, 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 uh, my response to her was, because I'm a black man living in America. And if a white uh, officer happened to stop me, then I'm prepared to prove that I live in this community. And... Um, and, and that, you know, got me to thinking about, you know, what is it that causes uh, a highly educated and gifted African-American male? You know, I, I've achieved, you know, several firsts, uh, including being the first African-American to serve as General Presbyterian of Trinity Presbytery. You know, what is it that um, makes me feel that the need to carry my driver's license while I'm walking through my own subdivision? May, may I ask you a question? Sure. Uh, oh, yeah. I take it she was surprised that you had it and surprised at the answer you're going to get. Yeah, yeah, she was. She was surprised uh, that I had it and was surprised by my answer. Um, but, um, you know, but there's, there's, there's some history behind all of that, you know, uh, including my very first encounter with white police officers. I was only eight years old. And uh, I was playing with some of my friends in a vacant lot near my house and uh, on a Saturday morning. And when a patrol car pulled up to the curb and two white police officers got out of the car and they asked us what we were doing. Um, 
and I happened to be the first one to to, to, to to chime up and say, we're playing. And then, you know, the officer at that point, one of the officers indicated that, well, you know, one of us, we were going to go to jail today. And, and I don't know, maybe it's because uh, out of all of my friends who were there, I was the one that spoke up first, but be that as it may, um, after they said one of us going to jail, uh, one of the officers grabbed me by the arm and uh, ushered me to the police car and opened up the door and uh, and they ordered me to get in the back seat. Now, that's my Ooh. first encounter with, with, with police officers, you know. And, mm. and so, you know, I'm back in the back seat and I'm just crying hysterically, Blaine. Um, uh, you know, and um, I'm, I'm, I'm crying you know, telling the police officers, you know, I didn't do anything. You know, I don't want to go to jail. I'm begging them to please take me home. Um, and I'm crying for my mother. Uh, and they were in the front seat laughing at all of this, you know. So um, so they drove me out of my community and drove me around for about five minutes. And, and then they end up dropping me back off where they picked me up, thank God. And... Um, and said to me at that time that if I tell anyone what happened to me today, that they would be back and arrest me and take me to jail for real. And um, and so here I am, eight years old. You know, all of my friends had, had gone home, and I was standing there alone, uh, thankful to be back in my neighborhood. But, you know, um, as I indicated in that article that I did on my thoughts on George Floyd, I... Um, I, I said that this was the first time that I was ever sharing this. I hadn't realized that I'd never told anybody, not even my mother, my father, my sisters, or brother. I never told anybody about that incident. And so, you know, and I published it and was saying that this is the first time that I'm sharing this story. Now, that's my encounter. So, you know, I grew up very suspicious of police officers. I mean, I. I always looked at them with an eyebrow of suspicion, given what happened to me at eight years old. Now, I don't know how many other young African-Americans had that similar experience. I only know what happened to me. Um, you know, I also shared with um, the folk in, uh, in the Presbytery and, and elsewhere, you know, uh, there was a time that I was, you know, a friend of mine came by, picked me up, um, and and let me drive his brand new car. And uh, so I'm driving around in his car. He's in the passenger seat. And uh, all of a sudden, you know, I get pulled over by a, a police officer. And, uh, you know, of course, as I see him get out of the car, I do what probably every African-American male has been taught to do. You know, you're going to roll down that window. Uh, you're going to put your hands in the 12 o'clock position on the steering wheel so that they're in full view when the officer looks into the car. And, um, and of course, when he asks you, when he gets there, you're going to ask, you know, what's the problem, officer? And um, I did that. And he asked to see my driver's license. Uh, and, again, what every African-American male probably has been taught, um, that's part of, you know, going to get ready to get your learner's permit and all that, you're going to have this talk that uh, you do not make a move with it in your hands until you fully explain what you're doing. And so, you know, I did. And I told the officer that my wallet is in my right back pocket. 
and I'm going to take my right hand to retrieve it so that I can give you my driver's license. And then the ask, is that all right for me to do mm. <laughs> And so when he said, yes, I did, and I, I moved very slowly, uh, retrieved my wallet, and uh, handed him my driver's license. And, you know, he looked at the driver's license and then, you know, looked back at me and said, what's a black man like you doing driving a nice car like this? Because it, it was my friend's brand new black uh, Cadillac sedan to build. And, um, and, and at that point, I sort of, you know, realized what was going on because it, it has happened to so many um, African-American males. Uh, you know, we, were, we had been pulled over for a DWB, is what we call it in our community. That's simply driving while black, you know. So he had asked to search my vehicle. And, um, and, um, and at that point, you know, uh, the friend of mine whose car it was, you know, he just simply said, no, not unless, you know, you have probable cause to legally do so or you have a search warrant. Um, well, the officer took my driver's license and um, he returned to his patrol car. And, of course, I know he was going to the database to see if there was anything that he could legitimately um, arrest me for. Um, but, you know, my record was clean. And, um, but it took him a long time to come back to the car. And when he finally did, he gave me my license and said we could go. But he followed behind uh, our car. And, of course, I know what that was all about, you know. He was following to see if I did anything wrong that he could then legitimately uh, pull me over for. So he he drove several blocks behind uh, our car and uh, uh, and then finally turned around and and pulled off. So which I was grateful to God for. <laughs> and then you know I, I shared with him another incident in growing up, and that is. Uh, you know, while I was, you know, living in Winsboro, South Carolina, uh, you know, just seeing how, you know, things that had happened. You know, you had a white uh, group of, of youth and one vacant parking lot. Uh, the police officers pulled up, you know, and they talking and laughing with them. And then uh, they pull out of that parking lot and pull over across the street to another parking lot where you have African-American youth doing the same thing that the white youth are doing, but they pull up to them with their lights flashing and have them all to disband, you know? So you see those those type of inequities that, that's, that have taken place throughout the years and, and, you know, have plenty more stories that I could tell. But, you know, I just sort of, you know, you know gave just a sampling uh, of what has gone on in my own life and and then you know I, I turned to the fact of what happened with George Floyd, and um, you know here was here was a man, you know that's being arrested for allegedly passing a fake uh, twenty dollar bill, and um, uh, but yet you know here he is, he's on the ground uh, begging for his life, you know for the for the police officer not to kill him. Uh, he's calling for his mama, and I think that's part of what drew, you know, that caused that incident with me at eight years old when I heard this guy calling for his mama, and you know, you had this police officer with his his knee on his neck, you know, for 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 
you know, all of that time, you know, eight minutes and 46 seconds, um, it, it's, it's, it, it just, you know, brought up to me that whole thing that happened to me when I'm in the back of the police officer car. I remember I was calling for my mama, <laughs> you know. Uh, but but part of what I tried to also do is, you know, just to say, you know, hey, how how can this be, you know, when when uh, when when you have a, a, a Dylan Roof who was a white man who massacred nine African Americans who were attending a Bible study at Mother Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, how this guy can be captured by the police. And the officers assage his hunger by buying him food from Burger King uh, simply because for them not to do so uh, would be considered inhumane treatment. And yet, you know, you can have George Floyd. He's, he's only allegedly being arrested for passing off a fake $20 bill. He's lying face down, handcuffed, with a police officer's knee on his neck. Uh, while he's saying he can't breathe, he's crying out for his mama, he's begging for the officer not to kill him. And and none of the officers present didn't consider that inhumane treatment. You know, so the point that I was just simply trying to say that, you know, as, as African Americans, we're not asking for any special treatment under the law. We're just asking to be given equal treatment under the law. And um, and that you know, unlike Dylan Roof, who um, had an opportunity to face due process of law, um, George Floyd didn't have that opportunity. That was taken away from him because he was killed right there on a, a Minneapolis, Minnesota street. Um, so that's part of what's going on with me when I had my driver's license and fell on the ground. My wife was shocked that I had it. Um, and, um, and she was, you know, um, shocked by the response, but she definitely understood that, you know, that whole type of reality. Well, you know, and as I said, you know, for, for, for an eight year old having that type of experience with, with white police officers, you know, I saw all police officers, white police officers are bad growing up, you know, because that was my personal experience. But, you know, I'm 64 years old now, and I know that that's not true. Um, and in fact, I shared the fact that I have a brother uh, who, you know, he has spent his entire career in law enforcement. And um, at the time, he was serving as a captain over one of the uh, seven police districts in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And uh, just last week, he's gotten a promotion. Wow. <laughs> so, uh, so we're grateful for that. He, he's, um, but nevertheless, uh, you know, I, I realize at 64 years old, just like any other profession, you know, there are good white police officers and there are bad white police officers, just like there's bad doctors, bad lawyers, bad nurses, bad teachers, and bad clergy. Yes, sadly, that's true, too. Yeah, and, and we have to hold bad people accountable and, and remove them uh, when necessary from uh, positions of, of, of trust that, that they occupy. So, Yes, that's, that's certainly a, a key point. Um, 
I wonder, have you had a conversation with your brother about your experience? Is that too personal to ask? Um, no, I haven't. I haven't had. Um, no, I just shared that with the Presbytery. I haven't had that 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 talk with him. No. Right. Well, I, maybe I'm being nosy. Um, one of the interesting things you said earlier is you did this in order to first lead by example and to foster some conversation. And uh, that's what that's what this is right now. It, it's interesting to me, Danny, we've known each other. We, we first talked in 2004 and began working together in 2005. So that that calculates to 15 years. And honestly, I don't know that you and I have ever had an in-depth conversation about race and justice in, in America and certainly haven't haven't shared personal um, stories uh, along those lines. Um, and, you know, I certainly trust you a lot and like to think we have a very good working relationship. And I bring that up to say it, it just illustrates that these conversations are hard. Uh, yes, they, they are very hard and um, um, they're, they're very difficult. I mean, they're difficult for African-Americans um, because, you know, these type of conversations don't always usually don't turn out too well when we when you try to deal with them. Um, and they're hard for even for whites who uh, are, are seeking to at least try to understand um, the realities of, of a, another people group. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, it gets to be very difficult. I mean, you know, I won't mention any names, but I mean, I know a couple of, of the white clergy here in our presbytery that um, are really have come under fire by uh, folk within their church simply because of the fact that they're trying to have these conversations and uh, and uh, acknowledging some of the inequities and um, you know the uh, you know and, and the role that the church has played in and. Um, uh, ensuring that you know these inequities exist as they do today, and they are coming under you know some fire by <laughs> and, you know and, and, and um, at least one of them uh, had contacted me before, uh, and trying to to get some uh, you know advice. I don't really give advice, but I just simply said you know if, if you do this because um, the person indicated that the session was 100% on board with it and that they, you know, I, I said, however, you know, once you do this, you're going to have to uh, expect that pressure is going to come to bear on, on the leadership of your congregation. And don't be surprised that although you got 100% agreement on your session right now, that you're not going to see some backstepping, and uh, and of course that has taken place. And not only that, but um, uh, I know at least one member of the session has resigned because just can't take the uh, the, the abuse that's coming from Christian folk, <laughs> church folk. <laughs> we can be very bad, Danny. Uh, <laughs> you know full well. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, and so that that has happened in, in, in a big way, and I'm just hoping uh, because the situation is of such a nature that um, I'm just praying for these two white pastors that um, they they they're able to navigate their their way through all of this, um, 
and that um you know they don't end up um you know being thrown out of their congregations or you know asked to leave <laughs> but yeah. um that's that's the reality yeah that is a possibility it reminds me of something I recently heard from Bob Staten, the president of Presbyterian College. I, I had a similar conversation with him, and he observed the importance of setting out a clear vision. He said it a little differently, but making a decision about where you're going and then having good people around you. And so that makes me the, – the, those pastors have obviously reached out to you, and they've connected with their session, so they're trying to get people on board. But it makes me think – Part of our role as uh, Presbyterian pastors uh, is to be a support to each other uh, between church and church and across, you know, across the, the boundaries of a particular uh, congregation and, and even particular presbyteries. Yes, 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 absolutely. You know, and you, you talk about that support, yeah, and that 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 is, you know, particularly think in terms of this whole pandemic is very important. Um, as as I had said earlier, um, you know, when when this when this happened, it's very easy for for congregations to circle the wagons and you know begin the navel gaze and just well, we just want to take care of ourselves. Uh, but I remember another thing John Maxwell says um, when it comes to you know supporting um, uh, your your leaders. And your lay leaders, you know, John Maxwell said that a leader is great not because of his or her power, but because of his or her ability to empower others. And, you know, so uh, right away in an effort to help our leaders support their lay leaders, you know, I work with our Presbyterian coordinating team to do a couple of things. Uh, one thing that I did right off is I encouraged them to set aside at least 10% of our unrestricted reserves of Trinity Presbyterian in order to establish grants and make them available to each congregation. Um, and that re- it was really twofold, you know, uh, they could apply for these grants for the purpose of either uh, starting a new mission opportunity, because we knew the church needed to be a- a- available to its community <laughs> at a time like this, or they can use it to enhance um, an, an ongoing uh, existing mission opportunity, or they can use it for technology, and that is so that they could get the type of things they need in order to be able to continue to connect to their members as well as to, to others. Um, so, and, and then also the other thing was, you know, I worked with the Presbyterian coordinating team to develop a recommendation on closing congregations coupled with a plethora of information that they would need um, in order to eventually look forward to to, to reopening their, their congregation. So, yeah, you got to you got to you got to support your, your 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 leaders, and that's so very important. And um, yeah, I I remember referring to that document actually and and realizing that it wasn't one page or two and it went on quite at length and was i would have what about this and then i'd scroll down and begin to see some of that answered it was a useful <laughs> document do you have any examples of mission outreach from those grants yet or they still come together uh yeah yeah um 
Well, and that's that's another thing that's that's so important for you to do is you know, and I'm not supportive, but you got to celebrate success. Um, and uh, uh, for for example, um, one of the things that that happened, I'm, I'm thinking on some of the churches in in the upstate right now. Um, it it they it it served as a motivating factor for many of those congregations in the upstate that are part of the uh, Greater Lawrence County cluster of churches. Uh, in fact, uh, it was like, wow, you know, the Presbytery is providing us with these types of grants to to reach out to folks. You know, if the Presbytery at a time like this is willing to do this, then we ought to be willing to do something. And and they did. They stepped their game up and they gave a, a, a money that um, has been used globally in terms of being able to help make a difference in the lives of others uh, in, in in Haiti and the Dominican Republic, but also even in the communities. You know, uh, uh, they've been able to uh, work out situations with local restaurants so that they were able to provide food for folk living in the communities. Uh, clothing for people in the communities. They've been able to, uh, you know, help shelter people, uh, putting them up for a night or two of hotel stay. Um, so, yeah, so a lot of exciting things have been, been going on as a result of that. And then again, on the technology side, I mean, of course, it was several congregations that were able to get the equipment uh, so that they can make that transition from off offline to online church and so that's been that's been very helpful as well but but you know the whole thing is to make a difference in the lives of people so that's what it's that's yes. what it's all about a positive difference right and that takes us back to the it is surprising once you realize you, either it's it's online or no line well you have to figure out how to make that happen yes. um if you're going to stay connected yes. That makes me want to circle back uh, just a little bit to we were we talked briefly about the challenges of some pastors and raising questions of racial justice mm-hmm. and needing to support each other. Have you do you think have you given any thought to how uh, pastors and and elders in the church can be a support to one another to other con- one congregation to another around the presbytery uh, or uh, even further? Uh, yeah, and you know, and the reason I sort of led by example is because uh, you know we had an opportunity. I don't know if you remember, but it was through our peacemaking focus group. Uh, had an opportunity to have some conversations uh, uh, around these realities, where we had uh, several congregations come together, and they were able to to listen to how uh, some. Uh, People of color, uh, they have been so. So the our peacemaking uh, focus group really sort of set the stage to have those type of difficult conversations, and they sort of refined that. Um, and and hopefully, you know, um, for those churches that want to, uh, we may be able to go back to our peacemaking focus group um, to uh, set the stage for some some other conversations around that, that whole reality. But but they, they they've already they've already uh, plowed that row in the field for us. So so maybe it's Jeremiah says plow up the fallow ground. It's different than, than plowing up a, a, a meadow. It's been plowed, it's just been at rest. 
and it's time to uh, to to dig it back up and see what God might cause to, to bear fruit there. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> one of the one of the hard one of the things that makes my head hurt, maybe the better way to put it, is thinking about how to get um, folk, well, you to have the kind of courage uh, to tell your story. And it, on the on the flip side is creating an opportunity for police officers to express, uh, to articulate their experiences of being in the field, um, because that's a hard job. Yeah. Um, and how to how in the, how is it that we might create those uh, candid, trusting conversations bet- between uh, people of color on one hand and police officers on the other hand? And then, of course, those aren't distinct categories. I had a conversation with the African American chief of police recently, and it was illuminating. Uh-huh. You got that one figured out? Uh- <laughs> Uh, no, I don't have that that one figured out. I wish I had the magic wand that that I could wave. And um, you know, I think part of it is you know, part of it is, and this this is a this is a tough thing to to do. Um, how can I say this? Um, is trying to be able to. To, to, to try to see what the other person sees—that's that's 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 not easy to do. You know, we talk at one another, we talk around one another, we talk about one another, but to, to try to to uh, see what another person sees requires you to really to listen and. And listen in a way that you're not just waiting to break in um, the moment you've got the space to, to say something. Um, it's, it's, it's listening in a way that you're not being accusatory. You know, you're, you're avoiding um, the whole accusatory, you know, you, you know, why do you do this all the ways? Or why don't you ever do this? Or the accusatory why statements, you know. Why do you behave like that? Why? Because then you you force persons to try to to come up with a defense uh, of their behavior. But it's trying to talk in such a way that you're able to. I'm able to see, you know, what you see from your particular viewpoint. Now it doesn't mean that I'm going to agree with your viewpoint, but I want to understand where you you're coming from. And and as I said, that requires a, a you know, a high degree of of listening skills and trying to see from the other person, see what the other person sees. And that's not easy. That's not easy to do. That's difficult, particularly when you're dealing with, you know, situations um, uh, like what we're talking about now, because, I mean, the emotions are, it can be so raw. But, you know, I'm not only trying to see what you see, but the next thing, you know, it's important for me to try to put myself in your place so that, you know, I can feel, not only see what you see, but feel it from your your particular perspective to better help me to really understand the situation as you're perceiving it. And again, that doesn't mean that I'm going to agree with your particular position, 
but at least if I'm trying to, you know, it's, it's sort of like, you know, Ezekiel that talks about, you know, sitting where the people's, you know, sitting where the people stand, you know. Um, say say that one more time so it's clear for the recording, Danny. Sitting where others, you know, have sat. Oh, yeah. And uh, so that I can actually not only see, um, you know, what you see, but I can also feel, uh, get a sense of, of, of trying to feel that, well, if I was in that position, you know, uh what would I think and how would I feel? How would I respond? Um, and that helps them to, to be able to really better understand another person's reality. Again, it doesn't mean I'm going to agree with it, but at least I can better understand. And then maybe I can have a conversation that's going to be civil enough that, you know, we can move towards some common ground um, because ultimately that's what we end up, we're going to end up having to do. We're going to have to, uh, end up, you know, being that that finding a common bridge that we can uh, all walk across it together. Um, you know, Jesus was a bridge builder. Paul was a bridge builder. You know, um, they killed him for that, Danny. Uh, yes, yes, yes. They, they both were killed, but uh, uh, but nevertheless, that's. That's what we've we've got to do. We still have to be those bridge builders. And if, and if I if I be, if I believe in the theology of the crucifixion, then it's important for me to also believe in the theology of the resurrection. That's right. <laughs> Sometimes it feels like a big risk if we're very candid. You're right, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So, as I say, you know that what, what I'm talking about is 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 easier said than done. That's for sure. I've sometimes wondered this, and I've never, I haven't really floated this idea, and I don't know if it'll make it to the, the, the what I've published, but let me share it with you. Sure. Um, two things. One, I, I noticed when I was chairing our mission committee of Trinity Presbytery that it, it was the one place in my, my life where consistently, uh, as, a, as a white guy, as a white person, uh, I would find myself in a room where there were more uh, African-Americans than white Americans, and, uh-huh. uh, which I thought, which was good for me, frankly. It was a good experience. And uh, mm-hmm. if I would stop and listen, I got to hear some conversations uh, that I certainly wouldn't get to, to, to hear otherwise. It was really fruitful yeah. for me personally. Yeah. And that, that, that caused me to think, I wonder, I wonder if our existing relationships uh, in, our, in our denomination uh, bet- particularly between uh, black folks and white folks, if those existing relationships could become the ground on which we could begin to have some candid conversation where we agreed to hear each other out and listen to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't know how we do that, but it, it's an idea that I had that because we're already in a kind of relationship that is based not on ourselves, but on Jesus that we might be able to risk those conversations. Yes. Yeah. And I particularly think about that in rela- in relationship to the police officers I know. Mm-hmm. And to say, okay, we're we've already we're already committed to be with each other. Can we have a can we hear each other out? So so that's an idea that 
I know it's it's rattled around in my head and it pops up when this when racial injustice flares back up again in our nation. Oh, okay. Uh, but but yeah, as I said, you know, we we do have to have the conversations. <clears throat> there are they hard conversations. They're uncomfortable conversations. Um, and as I said earlier, you know, what I was talking about is easier said than done. Um, yes. Uh, because many times, <clears throat> I mean, just like I, I shared with you about a, a couple of white pastors who who are seeking to, to move in the right direction, uh, what they're up against, it, it, it just, it, it tends not to turn out that well. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, and, and honestly, I you know, for full disclosure, I mean, even when I thought about after I had written the the, the uh, my thoughts on George Floyd, and I was getting ready to push the button to send, I paused, and sure. I had to have, I had a conversation with my wife uh, because, you know, I, I I realized at that particular point, you know, I, you know, in the past over the years, understanding how this type of uh, reality. Uh, tends can can work out <laughs> that um, you know I have to say okay well you know this may end up costing me my job yeah um, and and I and yet I know folk need to have discussions about this and as a leader you know I need to, to try to lead by example and to, to to frame this in a way that it's going to be wholesome and healthy for everybody and. Um, and for the most part, it, it has worked out uh, to be positive, not not in every instance. Um, and uh, I won't get into those that, that have been negative, but, but for uh, a large majority, it's worked out positively. But at that point, you know, I had to realize, okay, I, I could end up losing my job for this. But yet it was the right thing to do. And at that point, I have, uh, again, going back to what we said earlier, Okay, if I'm going to be crucified for this, if I believe in the theology of crucifixion, I'm going to have to believe in the theology of resurrection, resurrection, resurrection. And if I lose my job, then that's okay. God has something uh, uh, for me in store for me, uh, regardless. That's true. I I I think I've said this, but in case I haven't, I really appreciate you extending yourself in this way, and I I pr- appreciate. The, that it must have you must have felt the risk of that, yes, uh, before hit and go. And I'm grateful for you sharing your story. I appreciate that. <laughs> Let me ask. Um, I I know you have something for this uh, this question. Do you have a word of encouragement to share with other leaders today? Uh, yeah. I I guess one word of encouragement. I I would would share with them is, um, you know, I had a, a, a conversation with a pastor yesterday. Was it yesterday? It may have been the day before yesterday. Uh, but anyway, you know, he was saying, well, you know, I can't wait to, you know, everything gets back to the way it used to be, in which I had to say to him, uh, I'm afraid, you know, what you're saying is not going to happen. I mean, church as we have known it is not going to go back to the way, all the way back to the way that it was. Uh, if if it does go back to the way that that it was, then 
you know, that's going to be problematic because, you know, this shift has just been too, too huge. I mean, you know, for example, in terms of, um, you know, those who have made the shift off to online church, I mean, you know, as I talked to pastors, you know, they didn't realize how much their shut-ins would appreciate this opportunity to be connected to the church again. You know, um, they're reaching folk who they've never reached before, um, members who have moved away, not just across the city, but across the country, are able to tune into their worship service. Now, how, how, Blaine, how would you, how, how would, you know, you as, as a pastor say to your shut-ins, because you all now have gone online, um, and, and, and in many instances, these are happening live, say to them, well, we, we're going to go back to the way we used to, and, you know, we're, and we're going to cut you off. <laughs> that, that's not going to happen, you know. Uh, and if it does. Good luck. If it does, you know, it's going to have other uh, repercussions. So, you know, but although, you know, uh, while doing church the way that we've known in the past may, may seriously change, I, I, I would just say to everyone still to be encouraged by realizing that our message doesn't change. You know, um, Paul talks about in, what is it, First uh, Corinthians chapter 9, uh, around about, beginning around about verse 19, I believe it is. You know, he talks about you know, though though I'm I'm free and I belong to no one, you know, I've made myself a slave to everyone's uh, to win as many as possible. He talks about the fact uh, in that passage uh, to the Jews, I became like the Jew. Why? In order to win Jews. To those who were under the law, I became like one under the law. Though I myself, you know, I'm not under the law. Why? So as to win those who were under the law. He he talks about um, to those. Not having the law, I became like one and not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I am I am under Christ's law. Why do you do that, Paul? Well, so that I might win those uh, not having the law. He says to the weak, I became weak. Uh, you know, I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. And I do all of this for the sake of the gospel. You know, so... The point is, methods change, but our message doesn't. Um, and I can remember, you know, when I was about 11 years old, my first job was at the corner store. Uh, it was a local corner store, and it had this big cash, iron cash register in it, playing, and with the white tabs. And you push the numbers down, and the white tabs would come up. Um, and that was the cash register of that day and time it's when I was 11 years old. But, you know, uh, not too long ago, I walked into a supermarket. They would whip my stuff past an infrared light. A lady came on, said what the item was and what the cost was, and then um, indicated how much I needed to pay and told the cashier exactly how much change to give back. Well, you know, that whole principle is the same today as it was back then, but they're not using cash, cash, hard cash registers today, you know? So, so our message remains the same, but you know, our, our method of delivering it, 
uh, may change. And, and that's okay. That's okay. And so, again, you know, so we're not the first to face this type of disruption. We won't be the last. And we have a God who's been there in the past with us now and will be with us as we move into the, the new future that God has for us. So just be encouraged. <laughs> that is very encouraging that, that God God has taken his, his people through disruption many times in the past. Yeah. And we can rely on God to do it again. Amen. Danny, I'm really great. I'm really grateful for your time today and thank you for coming on the podcast. Uh, I, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much to Danny Murphy for his time and his courage to share his experiences. I was deeply moved by the way Danny framed the conversation in terms of the cross and resurrection. And thanks to you for listening to Leaders Learning. This is the last episode of Season 1. I would love to hear your thoughts on this conversation and to hear your thoughts on the podcast as a whole. I'm working to figure out if I should continue these conversations in 2021. Let me know what you think. Maybe you know someone I should speak with on the Leaders Learning Podcast. Send me an email to leaderslearning2020 at gmail.com. You can catch up on all of our conversations at our website, leaderslearning.net. God bless, and I hope to see you soon, one way or another. podcast is over now. Whatever you're doing next, it's time to go do that. Hey, maybe what you should do next is to uh, send this podcast to somebody else, somebody you think would enjoy it or be challenged by it or stimulated by it. That'd be a big help to me. Anyway, podcast is over. See you soon, one way or another.